Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Hey guys, how's everyone doing? Doing good. Aaron, how are you? Good. Hey, everybody. Hello, Cass. Welcome. Welcome, everybody in the audience to the college affordability slash debt episode of the Reframers podcast. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this. We're all friends from college. So um, we have kind of a, and obviously we're all millennials. So we're, this is definitely a topic that affects us pretty directly. Yeah, and relevant with the Biden administration announcing some form of debt forgiveness for student loans. And there's even ongoing discussion of, you know, even within the Democratic Party for administration to forgive even more debt. So we thought it'd be a great time to jump in and talk about our thoughts on it. For sure. Cass is actually going to start us off and give us a little background on uh, what the founders kind of thought about education in general. Thanks, Erin. Yeah. So some of the research into this was a little hard because obviously the way the founders thought about this was really different hundreds of years ago. But I did like this article that I found where it was talking about how America's founding generation was thinking deeply about higher education. It talks about George Washington being the first American chancellor of the College of William and Mary, Thomas Jefferson founding the University of Virginia, and James Madison being one of America's first graduate students. Um, It does mention that the founding generation didn't view higher education in economic terms. Instead, they were talking more about it as a fundamental and necessary public good for a free society. And then the article just talks a little bit about how the founders pulled from hundreds of years of history and studied it closely when forming the constitution and forming the basis that our country would be founded on. And education at that time had been restricted to aristocracy and religious figures. So the founders really felt strongly that if people were going to rule, if the people were supposed to rule, then education should be more widely accessible. And they saw the purpose of higher education in terms of citizenship. Thanks, Cassie. That makes me think of just education in general in the United States. It's not something that's a protected right in the Constitution. Um, It's not listed in, in, you know, as an amendment or anything. But at the same time, we have clearly as a society said that we um, are going to value education. And I'm talking specifically about elementary and middle school and high school education right now, you know, that's subsidized by the federal government, by state governments. You're required to go to school. It doesn't have to be the public school. It could be homeschool. It could, you know, homeschool programs. But we as a society in the United States really do value education. In the last few decades, higher education, so college educations have become increasingly more important, which is another reason why federal debt from or student debt from um, attending college is such a big issue right now. Yeah, for sure. And it's part of our, our taxes that we pay. So property taxes for your home or, you know, if you are renting your own, whoever owns your apartment or whatever, their part of their property taxes goes to help pay for public education. So that is something that we have as a society said, this is valuable to us. And we believe should be, you know, something we spend money on. And we do, we spend billions of dollars every year on education. And I think just in general, I think that the United States values that. And I think that it's kind of one of those things that's tied to democracy is education. I don't have anything to to support that, but I just feel like there's this strong spirit of education in 
United States, you know, progress towards democracy away from monarchies and, and dictatorships and things like that. We support education. We don't burn books. We don't, we want people to go to school because we believe that an educated populace makes for a better society rather than barring people from ideas as a threat to the society. And I think this is kind of interesting because right off the bat, funding public schools is definitely something that the founders believe strongly in. They believed in educating our children. And I think it's interesting that our topic today is specifically college affordability and student debt because it's past that point of what we're, you know, quote unquote guaranteed or what our rights are. It kind of edges more into, okay, but past a certain point, what now? Is it the responsibility of the person who's seeking the education to fund that? Should the government continue because it makes a better citizenry? Is that the right use of that word? I think so. I don't know. And I think that a lot of people feel strongly either way. Yeah, that's totally true. And that's kind of interesting. It gets us into legislation about student debt. So, you know, one of the questions or things people might not know is where does student debt come from? So this actually is, there's legislation about this. It's the Higher Education Act of 1965, which was big political push of Lyndon B. Johnson during his administration. So what this legislation did is it increased federal spending to colleges, it increased financial aid, and it provided other school-related aid, like funding for libraries and things like that. What it also did is it created Pell Grants and Stafford Loans. So these are the you know, grants and loans that come from the federal government that have you know, purportedly low interest rates for students to be able to attend college. This is legislation that really started the federal government subsidizing higher education. And it's interesting because in the 1980s, Reagan, one of his political platforms was to decrease funding for outright grants for federal aid, because he didn't think that post-secondary education should be government subsidized. And I think it's interesting to see the swing of, you know, the, the mid-1960s of, yes, we should subsidize this to the 1980s of this is actually a private pursuit. And if you want higher education, you know, take it, but this isn't something the government should be involved in. And it kind of shows this ideological swing. And I think that's interesting to think about today, where I think in my perspective, it's kind of swung back the other direction where people sort of expect that they have this right to higher education, partly, I think, because of the availability of these different federal loans. And there's a big demand now, even just in our generation for student debt forgiveness or, you know, more subsidized higher education. I think that sums it up quite nicely. Actually, I think that that's pretty much what it is, right? It's that we, as a generation now, there's a contingent of us that feel that higher education should be, like you said, a right, you know, a basic human right. I fall on the opposite side of that. I'm, I feel more aligned with, with the Reagan ideology on that where I support education. I'm college educated. I think college education is a wonderful thing. And I don't think there's any disputing the data that shows that you are going to be a higher earner if you graduate from college compared to just getting a high school degree. I mean, it's, there's a very strong correlation between levels of education and, and earning potential, but I don't think that the government has a role in that or should have a larger role in that. Uh, just to drop in there, a statistic from the most recent one that I could find, so it's from 2021, says that the earnings potential for people with bachelor's degrees over people who have high school diplomas is about $33,000 a year. 
And that's, I mean, 33,000, that is a year salary in some parts of the country. It really makes a huge difference um, in your earnings potential, whether you have a, a college degree or not. Um, and the other statistic I found that I thought was super interesting is that women with bachelor's degrees earn on average $506,000 more in their lifetime than women without. And they didn't have a correlating statistic for men, but I imagine it's probably not quite as big of a difference. Um, I think it makes a, a big impact, particularly for women um, having a college degree. So why is this such a big deal right now? I think everyone kind of has a vague, not even a vague sense. We know that student lending is, has increased a lot, that there are now these huge deficits from lending, that there are defaults on these loans. So I just want to give kind of a rundown of where we stand statistically when it comes to student debt. So currently in the United States, there's $1.56 trillion of student debt. 45 million people are borrowers. It's the second highest consumer debt category after mortgages. It's higher than credit cards or auto loans. And it's also one of the most collectible kinds of debt because it can't be discharged in bankruptcy. Unlike a mortgage, you can't have like a house foreclosed. And it's debt that passes beyond your death. So if you die and have kids or other family members, your student debt transfers to them. The average debt for the class of 2018 was 29,000, which was an increase from the year before. The states with the highest levels of student debt are the states with the highest population. It's California, Texas, Florida, and New York. Students who go to different colleges pretty much all have debt, but I think the breakdown between public and private schools is kind of interesting. 66% of public school graduates have debt, and the average is 25,000. That's 25% higher today than it was in 2008, which I think is just wild. That was only 13 years ago, and we're a quarter higher in the amount of debt that we have. That's insane. Uh, 75% of students from private schools have debt, and 88% of students from for-profit colleges have debt. And um, those, those numbers are higher, too. The debt that they have is higher than uh, public schools. So you can see, I mean, just based on those statistics, why this is such a huge issue. And I think that you know, kind of going back to your point of, okay, well, this is sort of a private good, right, that the government maybe shouldn't be involved in. At this point, the government kind of has to be involved because of how much money it is outstanding in student debt. It, I, don't, it, I don't think it can kind of stand on the sidelines. And maybe, you know, one of the changes is changing the federal loan system. But it's a huge problem right now. And because of the level of student debt, there's very real effects on the economy. Um, so from 2019, 2020, the national economy shrank 3.5%, but the average student debt grew by 3.5%. So the economy is getting worse and student debt is increasing. In the last decade, student debt, it's increased an average of 91 billion per year for the last 10 years. And when you have debt, there's like very uh, clear lines between reduced spending, people are less likely to start businesses, there's, so there's fewer small businesses for people to work for, you're less likely to buy houses, and it also stresses social programs like food stamps and welfare. So there's a lot of very practical and real effects to student debt as well. And I think this kind of goes into the, the debt forgiveness discussion of, okay, we have this debt. We have all of these practical effects. Does it actually make sense for us then to think about canceling some of the debt? I think that what you what you have shown is that it is it is an issue. But I would say that 
all debt is an issue, right? I mean, we, we as Americans have a ton of debt, regardless of what category it falls under. I read a great story that was basically comparing the, the student debt quagmire that we're in right now to like car loans. Basically, the article was saying that, let's say, you know, we have car loan debt as a nation where I think the average monthly payment is approaching $600 a month for a car. And I think we as Americans, uh, you know, we're a very automotive based society that having a car is kind of a prerequisite to being able to be a part of society, right? You could almost say it's a right. But this article is basically going around the analogy saying car loan debt is a huge problem. It prevents people from paying for food, right? Gas, you know, inflation is right now at the highest it's been in since the 1970s at five point something, 5.1%. You know, that prevents people from being able to travel and to buy groceries because the price of gasoline is higher. So we should, we should forego that debt, just forgive automotive debt. And it says, well, that is then unfairly impacting people who scrimped and saved and made the responsible decision to buy a used car or to buy a cheaper car, pay cash for a car where they don't have debt versus the people who took out a loan, put down the minimum and bought a car that they had no means of being able to pay off because they wanted it. So the analogy is tied, you know, basically one-to-one to college. And this article basically went on to say that by forgiving the uh, existing college debt that is out there or providing for free college, it will basically crowd out students who are serious about education and about higher education. Because if you make it a public good for everybody, everybody's going to go into it. And so it will crowd out the people that are serious and it will de-incentivize those people who are trying to go into a higher education field from going because it devalues the diploma. Interesting. So I think that there's a there's a lot of countries that subsidize higher education it's significantly, um, so way more than the United States. So Australia, for example, if you go to state school, I, I don't know how they do it because they don't have states. So, but whatever the like public school is for Australia, uh, you can go there for free, and then your tuition basically is taken out of your pay once you get a job as a tax. Germany's education is, you know, way cheaper than the United States because that's also subsidized by the country. So I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, but the idea of okay, well, education is going to become less valuable if it's offered to everyone. I don't know if I think that's true. I mean, we have education that's offered up to, you know, the high school level to everyone, and that's still very valuable. And also, you know, if we are going to even out some of the universities, so we don't have these top elite universities and then these state schools, and we have a little bit less elitism or even a lot less elitism in higher education. I mean, I think that would be a great thing. <laughs> so I, I don't know that it would be a bad thing if there was more access. I think there would, that would be a really good thing. I don't think I, education needs to be competitive. I agree. I think education does need to be competitive, but I think by making it, by making it easier to go, it makes it less competitive. It's supply and demand, right? It's, but on the, on the labor side, rather than on the good side, if you make college education available for everybody, the, the way that I see it, and, and I know I'm making a leap, but if you forgive the debt, it makes it so more people can go. Can we agree on, on that part? At least if, if, if there's no debt to be incurred, the ability for people to go is a lot easier. Okay. So that's a little bit, I think that's a little bit different because we're talking about 
forgiving debt of people basically who have already been to school, right? And have all of these these uh, loans that they've taken out mm-hmm. as opposed to, it sounds like what you're talking about is actually just free college. And I think that's what I'm talking about too. So you're not forgiving the debt. It's just people coming in and not actually having to pay. What would happen is there's a program, right? There's a program for debt forgiveness for college education. So if we're saying that we're going to forgive I think the some of the Democrats in in the legislature want fifty thousand. I think ten thousand is what just was announced, but they want fifty thousand. So let's say if that happens, fifty thousand dollars of debt forgiveness through this program. I'm assuming, and maybe incorrectly so, that future graduating classes would then also be able to have fifty thousand dollars of their college loan debt forgiven as well. Okay, so I'm I'm thinking of it as like a one time forgiveness. And then they would, you know, do something about people going into college, not like an ongoing debt forgiveness, because then it's just like, I don't know, there's no reason to do it that way. Okay. Okay. So that that's helpful then. So a one-time debt forgiveness to like get this train back on track and then Mm -hmm. do something else. Okay, sure. Mm -hmm. I actually did see a similar proposal that, that you mentioned about once you graduate, part of your salary is then you said it was done through a tax, but um, I saw, you know, there's no reason why it couldn't be done through managed by the school as like a private, a, a private enterprise, because some of these schools, like you mentioned, the elitism, some of these schools have billions of dollars in endowments, like so much money in these schools where sure, why don't you, and then it's based off of, and then it can be based off of your income afterwards. So if you graduate and you're a lawyer, you know, you can pay let's say 4% of your annual salary for the next six years or something like that. And that funds your education versus if you're, you know, graduating and you're an English major or something and would earn less than lawyers do or doctors. And so maybe theirs, it's only like 3% paid out. So it's funding it in that way. So I think that's actually a great proposal going forward, but I, right. And I mean, that's like the income-based repayment, structure for like paying back loans. Mm -hmm. Um, although it's not like directly out of your paycheck, right. It's just, that's, you know, you can pay back loans by different percentages, depending on what your salary is. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's like, that's the interesting thing. When I first, I, I feel like I've like swung back and forth so much when I think about student loan cancellation because when I first heard about it, I was kind of like, okay, that, you know, maybe that would like be really helpful for the economy. There are so many people in our generation who, you know, can't buy houses or are putting different life aspects on hold. And like, I, I know anecdotally, I know that's true from people in my circle. I, you know, I think there's lots of articles, research about this as well, but then you kind of get into the, okay, well, so this is personal for me, I have, I had college loans. I had loans from um, undergrad and from grad school and I have paid them back and it was thousands of dollars. So it's like, okay, that hurts a little bit to think that I, you know, I did that. I've seen other people budget really, really carefully so they could pay back their loans, like not just making minimum payments, doing everything they could to pay back their, their student debt and being able to do it. And then the government coming in behind and, and canceling a bunch of student debt. Like someone could have paid back like 50 K in debt last year, you know, and then they get nothing from this. Mm-hmm. And that's like a little bit of an individually focused approach. And yet there's also something I think about personal responsibility involved in like taking out debt. But then 
I think you can even swing back on that and say, well, not everyone is like financially literate. Like a lot of people don't understand how these systems work. And I was really lucky in that I had parents who knew how to apply for federal aid and I knew how to go pursue scholarships and all of, I had all of those resources to make the loans that I had lower than they could have been. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't have those resources. And so I think it's actually a really complicated question that doesn't like lend itself easily to one side or the other. Mm -hmm. No, I completely agree because like I started saying when we, when we first began this discussion, I think that all the problems that you said about the student debt problem are true. Like they are genuine problems. I'm my opposition to forgiving student loan debt is not because I don't think it's a problem, right? I mean, obviously if people were able to keep more of their money every month and not have debt falling over them, right? It's, it's a very, very waterfall type of situation where, okay, now you have better credit scores. Now you can, like you said, open up a smaller business. Now you can spend more money on businesses. Now you can, you know, whatever the case may be with your money. I I'm in total agreement on all of that. But my problem is, is the one that you mentioned of what you said, it was like a personal, you know, feeling for you about the personal responsibility side of it. I a hundred percent feel that way. And I think that we should have a moral government. And I think that if you paid off your $22,000 of student debt, and then six months later, the government comes in and forgives that money, that's something morally that the government has to reckon with. And we are directly impacted by that. And so I don't, I think that that's immoral of the government to do because you're picking and choosing who is able to be forgiven based off of the timing, based off of being involved in this. So that's my opposition especially because I, I did see something else too that was saying that the, the median borrower owed 17000 in 2016. A quarter of borrowers with outstanding debt reported owing 7000 or less, while another quarter owed 43000 or more. And they're talking about the average monthly payment at that time was only twenty-two, sorry, $222. So that's something that if you are college educated, that should be a manageable payment. I see the pendulum too, because I feel it also. I'm like, well, if it's so little amount each month, then why is it a problem to pay back? However, it clearly is a problem because it's growing more and more every year. I have a solution, I think, that would help this problem, uh, but it's outside of the debt forgiveness window and more on the actual college side of things. But I want to hear your guys' thoughts on, on my ramblings. Yeah, real quick. I think that you're making an assumption that $200 a month isn't a lot for someone who's college educated. You know, I, depending on where you live and what kind of job you have, and this is where I think people maybe get into arguments about, well, maybe you should choose a major that is more practical or whatever. Um, I think you don't run into that if you have higher education that is subsidized. I think that arts are really important, right? But like, you might not make a ton of money as a painter, but like we as a society do the arts. And so, but you can have a problem with that where a a $200 payment a month is a ton of money for someone. And I actually think that the number I saw is that the average payment was around $333 per month, which I think that's a significant chunk of money. So, you know, I think that it is a tougher payment and I want to give Kathy a chance to, to talk to, but I think it's, it's interesting that the, the argument that it's immoral to forgive debt. I don't think I agree with you on that one. I think it's probably more immoral to let people just sit with thousands of dollars of debt and not be able to like live their lives at all. 
I'll just say this and then Cass, go ahead. But what's different from student loan debt versus owning a house? Why don't we forgive mortgage payments? I think it's because right? of how we, I think it's because of how we incentivize it as a society. For one, the federal government subsidized this. But the federal government does not subsidize like housing loans. It doesn't subsidize car loans. We also say that this is something that you need to like contribute to society. You don't have to have a house to contribute to society. You need education to be able to make these contributions. Like it's something that I think that we have said, you are a better member. You are a better citizen if you have higher education. That's different than a mortgage or a car. But we value, I mean, the federal government values owning a home, right? You get tax breaks based off of owning a home versus not. Like that's an incentive. That is something that, that we as a society have incentivized through the government and through our tax code, as well as through just society dealing with people. So I don't see a huge difference in, in that respect of, you know, why not forgive other forms of debt if we're going stu- to forgive student debt? If I have a credit card debt, why don't we forgive that as well? I have to buy my groceries. I have to buy my gasoline. Like there's the arguments I don't see very, very much in substance, just in kind. And so what's the, what's the difference? So I think the difference is the, the argument that it's a collective good to society to have more higher, highly educated people. That's different than having it. Cause, cause I feel like the way you're talking about it, it's like in a personal way. Oh, it's personally beneficial for me to have a car or have a house or have an education. And that's true, right? But it's also a you know, collective societal good to have more highly educated people in society where I don't know that it's necessarily collectively better for society if more people own houses as opposed to renting them. The impact is different. And I think that that's why the, the debt maybe should be more forgivable than those other situations. You know, you can use credit cards to do anything, right? You can make huge purchases. (laughs) Like it doesn't make sense for the Mm -hmm. government to forgive credit card debt. But that's not what you're doing when you have an education. But if you go to to higher education to get, like you said, an art degree or something like that, sure, we do value art as a society. But if that's not something that's economically viable, why, why is that? Is why is that a smart decision? Like if you can't make a living with the arts degree, and no shots, by the way. Like I'm. This is you know, purely in the logistical, cold economic side of things. If you can't make a a living with an arts degree, why is that something that we are as a government or as a citizenry subsidizing? I think it would be because we are valuing the education above maybe the economic benefit. So you would be... But we're paying for the economic benefit, right? We're, We're, we as taxpayers are putting money into the system to receive better economic outputs from the result of that education system. So this is only, you're only looking at it from an economic perspective. That's, you know, like this is, it it doesn't have to be just what is economically best for society because economics doesn't drive everything. Like if you want a society that has arts, then like we have to consider what that means. And education long-term does have economic benefits for society. And, and also just like research and development, technology production, you know, like all of those things are important for societies. And I, yes, I think that we should subsidize those things. And if you have a subsidized education, you can study things that maybe are not the most practical, but then you can go out into the world and be able to try your hand at them. And if you fail at them, you can try something else without being saddled with like $50,000 in debt. But the reason I'm looking at it purely economical is because we're talking about student loan debt forgiveness, which is purely economical. 
It's not purely economical though, because there's ideological reasons why people want it one way or the other. Like it can't just be economics. Right. And, but the ideological reasons are like what we started this conversation kind of talking about of like the personal side of things versus the, you know, it'd be great if these people weren't saddled with, like you said, 50K in debt. Yes. Do you want to jump in? (laughs) So many good thoughts. So many good points have been made. Couple things. I think it's really interesting hearing you guys talk about what makes the best society. Like what, what makes the best citizen? Who are our best people living in our neighborhoods and in our communities that are consistently pouring back and making everything better for their fellow man? I think our best and brightest, when they are saddled with tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt or really debt of any kind, but student debt specifically, can't exit college and then afford to pour back into the community. So we've effectively lost all of the value of having this more highly educated person that enters the workforce that maybe does economically, you know, buy a car and buy a house and shop at their stores, both local and big box. Like they're not able to do any of the things that they would be able to do that we are saying, oh, an educated person does these things and makes our society better. Erin, you live in San Francisco, $300 as a, a single person living, trying to share a room or a, in a house of five people or something like that. Like you can't just take it for granted. And that's here with a good degree. I don't know how that looks in other parts of the country, but I know that $300 is not the same from person to person. It's really interesting to talk about who pays and who it benefits if the students aren't the ones that pay. It's interesting to talk about if your student loan was forgiven a moment after you had just paid it off, like if you had spent the last year making all these right decisions. And I do think that that's a really good point, something to think about. Like if you've had these things instilled in you by parents or leaders in your life to work hard and have the value of the dollar and all these things. And then, uh, and then it gets paid for you. The government comes in. I kind of couldn't care about that because I think if you could separate yourself from it, if it wasn't so personal to you, you would be so thrilled that nobody after you has to go through that again. Right. Isn't that all anybody wants is that the people come in next don't have it as hard, don't have it as terrible. And the other thing I wanted to mention that you talked about was the things that our society incentivizes. I do agree that we intentionally incentivize certain things already. That's already a thing. We, like Zach said, people get a tax break for owning a home. Um, Our taxes were different when we got married. There are things that the government prioritizes or de-incentivizes or just generally treats differently. I think it's interesting to talk about you know, for example, if if the government made a decision that they really were going to take climate change seriously and they didn't want everybody to own a car, they really wanted everybody to take the bus, they would invest in more buses and they would give you like a stipend each month or something to like pay for a bus pass. And like you wouldn't get it if you bought a new car or you'd need to buy a hybrid or an eco-friendly car. I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that the government look at the statistics, see and recognize the benefit that a higher educated person has on their society, on the people that pay taxes and pay into the economy and figure it out. And maybe that's too simple to say it like that, but I do think that it's unreasonable to expect that 
we would pay for a student's public school through 12th grade and then be like, but at 12th grade, you have to earn it. And you're not good at like, I don't, I don't see the connection there. I think if, if we value it, we should value it and we should incentivize it and we should find a way to make it possible for the most possible people. I agree with you ideally. And so that maybe is a nice segue unintentionally into what I think maybe would help fix the problem, even though I don't think it will happen. The colleges need to spend less money <laughs> flat out. Erin was muted, but she just did a big yes with both hands gesturing. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. This is totally one of my points too. They need to spend less money is a huge deal. Yes. Co- continue, please. I mean, no, that's it. Like flat out I, I, in, in doing my research, I was finding that, you know, some colleges and for us on this call, we've been to college. We know how great the Cal Poly rec center was, man, that was awesome. How much did that cost? How much did that cost us individually in other people, you know, student loans that paid for that because that's coming out of somebody's pocket. Right. So I saw something like one of the universities in Texas has like a lazy river. I'm like, okay, come on. I get, you want to have amenities that drive people to come to your school. However, if you're, especially if you're a state school, right. If you're a private school, I don't care do whatever you want. If you have the money and you're making profit every year, if you think building a lazy river is a great idea, go for it. But if you're a state school, you're there, you're there to learn and to receive a higher education, regardless of the field. I don't care what you get your education in now, but it should be done in a very economical way from the college's standpoint. They need to bring their costs down and that will make it more affordable for everybody. So that's, that's one of my, my prongs. And, and Zach, that already exists, right? People go to community college all the time. All the time for you sure stay it, home and drive in and drive home it does but, but no no i'm talking about the actual college as an institution cal poly university or uc davis or harvard i don't care about harvard they're private but you know what i mean like the actual colleges themselves spending less money cutting down on their expenditures so it is cheaper to attend the university because this is one of those things where if you're a college campus and you're getting federal subsidies in, in the existing system, I'm not talking about if we change anything, but in the existing system, if you're getting subsidized you know, money from the federal government, in addition to tuition from people attending your, your university, what do you care how much you charge the government, right? Like nobody gets hurt with that. So why not spend money on a lazy river versus running it more like a business where you have to be profitable in a way that is not business, maybe isn't a great example, but running it in a more streamlined, cheaper route. So we don't have to charge so much. So that's, that's my take. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I would definitely push that uh, approach on the private schools too. I mean, they're nonprofits. They shouldn't be just making tons of money. They do. They have huge endowments, which is a nonprofit thing, but like their football teams and their basketball teams, all of that, it's huge. It brings in tons of revenue and they're, you know, I don't think they're like breaking any (laughs) nonprofit laws or anything, but it's just like, why do you need to run an institution that is supposed to be for education as if you just need to make as much money as possible? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the presidents of these universities, I looked up just a couple salaries. The president of NYU makes $1.5 million a year. The president of the university of Chicago makes $3.3 million. Like it, there's just no reason for this high of, of a salary. If you're, if you're, offering education, you know, and, but I mean, like maybe we should pay educators more, but I, that's a sort of separate thing, but just like in separate, terms yeah. of spending in general, it's just like, you're right. They don't need lazy rivers. They don't need 
the biggest, newest football stadium ever. And, you know, I think that we at Cal Poly didn't need the rec center. (laughs) I mean, like, maybe we need to replace the gym in the old rec center. I don't know. But, like, did we need three pools? Probably not. And it's just something that... Yeah, it's just something that like made the the school maybe more competitive to get more students or something like that, you know, and, and that's that's what it is. It's become almost this like arms race between schools of who has the best amenities. And that's really not what higher education should be for. And this is also <laughs> this is a really big critique when you talk about schools where they're like really big party schools, which Capital is a little bit of a party school, not as much as like other ones, but I mean, that's a reason a lot of people like sometimes pick the schools they pick is because of how much fun they think it's going to be. We're focusing and we're also just even like teaching 18 year olds who like can make some great decisions for themselves and maybe not some other great decisions, like what to value when they're picking college because of, you know, the, the, everything that colleges have become, which is way more than just offering an academic future. Yeah, well said. Well, I'll just share something just as you're talking about that. I'm thinking about my own experience and, you know, everybody's got their own little story, but for me personally, I had a deal with my family. I was the the first kid. I didn't have an older sibling that went first. And the deal was if I got good grades in high school and passed on my tests and did all that, that I could go to a four year, like not a community college, like a go to that school and live there. And that my parents would help me with that. That was like a deal that we made. You know, that's maybe not the same as me making that deal with my local or federal government. But I do think that it was interesting. Like I entered into that deal knowing like what I was going to get out of it, knowing the value of an education. My mom always talked about gave me more choices, gave me more opportunities and that I I could do or not do that. But that was what I was going to gain from it. And that if I did better, I would have more schools available to me if I did worse less in okay. high school. If you did better in high in school, high you'd school. have more. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think that this is a really simple way of, of thinking about it. I did well and got into a number of schools and was able to choose and chose a state school because it was more affordable, but I did want that college experience, quote unquote, to be able to go and live somewhere new on campus, meet the people, have the fun, play the sports, like do all the things that you see in the movies. And again, it was part of the agreement. Like I had, I had, you know, quote unquote, earned that in a way per the agreement that I was in with my family, but I wasn't like Erin. I didn't, I didn't pay for my school. I was gifted that and I'm really lucky. And I know not everybody's like that, but just to kind of tie back into our original conversation about if an education is less valuable or less earned, if it's not paid by a student. I think maybe, I think you could definitely make an argument that some people value their education a lot more than others because they ha- they worked a job or multiple jobs while they were getting it or to get it. And maybe they had to take time off. Maybe they're a re-entry student and they had to come back and figure a way out. But I'll say this as you know, one of the most fortunate people that just had it all taken care of, I even still right now am like, what is it? Like the top nine percent or something of the world has a college education so even if I did nothing with it for years I would still have it and I would still be this like better armed citizen in my community like better educated it teaches you how to think whether or not you have an arts degree or you're a doctor your ability to think critically and to reason and to have been exposed to other things I think 
just quadruples. And I would like us to give everybody that opportunity, whether or not their like perception of that gift is equal across the board. And maybe we do it like scholarships where you, you, maybe there are a lot of them, like more than available scholarships, but we still have people apply or get grants or it can be paid out in their taxes over the next 10 years of their life. Something that's affordable rather than being you either can do it and you have to budget, budget, budget and have family help and get scholars. Like it, the barrier to entry shouldn't be so high. Even I just, I'm always struck by like how a kid has to pick a major at like 17 years old. Like they have to know what they're going to do for the rest of their life. So young. And I think even at age 22, by the time you graduated, you still might not even really know what you've done. You don't even know what you've been given or what you had or earned. Like, I'm glad that the school had a cool rec center and I'm glad that it had pools because it was an experience, but you're right. At the end of the day, it is just the education. So maybe like if we could meet somewhere in the middle where it was still, you were able to like have this little taste of the world and this fancy fun way, but also you exit this better citizen. Yeah. Split the difference somehow. Yeah, I agree. It's not like a hotel. It's not supposed to be luxurious. (laughs) Right. Like I, I was grateful for the rec center too. Like I, and by the way, if you're not familiar, rec center is like the recreation center. It was like our gym, but can I tell you guys a secret real quick? Sure. I never went into the new rec center. Not one time. (laughs) I never saw it. It was dope. It was really, it looked really cool. I don't know. I just never made it in anyways. I mean, I, I enjoyed it too. Like I I agree with with what you're saying, Cass, but if it was not a, a government tied thing, who cares if they can afford it and people willing to pay for it, just like normal businesses. Sure. Have a rec center, have a lazy river, like go to the, some of the hotels in Las Vegas. Right. But um, if it's the government and it's the taxpayers funding for it, then that's where it's like, you can't, you can't be lavish in that respect. There are other things that that money can be better spent on. And at that point we owe it to ourselves and we would be, I think as a government negligent in not spending that money better, but this is just hypothetical right now. Yeah. And I mean, that argument applies also to the private schools, right? Because the students going to the private schools are also getting the federal loans. So it's still like government subsidized because they're still getting the federal loans. Something that is interesting um, that I'm not sure how to solve for is I don't actually think that federal loans are maybe the best answer to any of this because of the problems that they've caused so far. And then also because of how they increase tuition. So the Federal Reserve has a statistic um, that said for every new dollar of financial aid given by the government, tuition is raised by 65 cents. So we were giving aid, but tuition is going up. And so it's not solving for all of the problems. And, you know, if colleges know this, they, if, if the government didn't give as much aid, then tuitions would probably go down because people wouldn't be able to afford to go without all of this tuition aid. But then at the same time, there are people who like literally would not be able to go to college without loans. Like they do not have the upfront money to be able to spend to go to college. And so, you know, I think that thinking of creative solutions to something like that is a little bit harder. Something we used to do, I mean, the UCs in California used to be free. And then because money from the state went directly to the UCs. And then states have progressed, I mean, consistently slashed budgets to public schools over time. So maybe one of the answers is to go back to a model that's more like that, where the government is giving the money regulated to the colleges and, you know, regulating how they can spend it. So they can't, you know, build 
lavish football stadiums or whatever it is. And then doing it like on that method to keep tuition low, you know, tuition caps is another way potentially you could help some of this, even just like capping the number of students. And then there's more colleges. There's a whole bunch of different ways. I think that this could actually be addressed. Something I will say is that I, I don't think the answer is student debt forgiveness. And then 20 years from now, having the same situation and needing student debt forgiveness again, it's not a solution. Just forgiving student debt is a band-aid on a problem that is much bigger than student debt. And so that's one of the biggest issues I think with the talk about student debt is I'm not seeing a ton of conversation about how to fix the bigger issue and the underlying issues. That's the real problem. It's the structure. It's, Mm -hmm. It's how we incentivize and we're using that word a lot in this podcast, but it's how we incentivize and how we structure our programs today. And I totally agree with you, Aaron, because that's the, who cares if we forgive the debt now? And then, like you said, in 10 years, 20 years, okay, now it's two and a half trillion. Well, we did it last time. So we have to do it this time. It, it doesn't fix anything. And I feel like as Americans, we're really numb to the idea that we just accumulate debt literally every time we breathe as, as a nation, I'm not talking about individuals, but as a nation, like our debt situation is Oh man, really bad. And so, you know, I I almost feel like we could handle this, like some, some of the immigration debates used to be of like, okay, we'll grant amnesty, but we're going to fix it. And so like, okay, we'll forgive the debt. If we fix the problem, I, in that case, I would be in favor of forgiving the debt. If it meant that we had a, a viable system to go forward with, which I haven't seen, that would be cool to do because we, we said earlier on in this podcast that unquestionably a college degree makes you more a higher earnings potential. Um, and that's true for all, all backgrounds of people, right? White, black, Hispanic, Asian, it doesn't matter. Having a college degree makes you earn more money or allows you to earn more money. So I saw from one hand, MSNBC was saying, oh, if you do the debt forgiveness, it will actually help minority populations more. But then I also saw from Reason Magazine also that they said that basically black and Hispanics would benefit substantially less than the balance suggests. And so that's, um, if anybody's interested, the paper is the distributional effects of student loan forgiveness. That would be something that would need to be considered in my opinion as well is how are we forgiving the debt in a way that's non-discriminatory because it shouldn't benefit any group more than another group. And when you start like linking, you know, what's the degree in and how much earning are you, you know, how much earnings do each group have now? It gets really messy and I don't know how you do that, but that would be something that if we are going to do this from a government standpoint and forgive the loans, it has to be in a non-discriminatory kind of way. There's some economists that can figure this out for us. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't know that there is, honestly. (laughs) You think it's us? We're the three. (laughs) It was so funny when we were, we we picked this topic partly because, you know, we're like, oh, student debt. Like we kind of know about this. We can talk about it. We all have experience, you know, we're in this generation that it really affects. And then we start looking into it and we're like, oh my God, we literally have to become economists to be able to talk about this. Like it's actually really, really complicated and there are not simple solutions. I mean, like we said it before, but the canceling it, it doesn't solve anything. It stops the bleeding. Okay. That's true. Yes. It doesn't solve nothing. It doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. Tomorrow the bleeding starts right back up. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I, that I found that we haven't mentioned at all um, in this pod yet. And I think, feel like I like to save all of my my great ideas for the end. Maybe I'll start changing that in the beginning, next episode. Vocational schools and trade schools as as an alternative route to college. So college we've talked about on this pod is very expensive. 
and going up and the debt uh, with it. But I just saw a little comparison to say median salary for jobs requiring a bachelor's degree versus median salary for jobs requiring a vocational certificate. And I'm not going to say that they're comparable, right? They are, you know, college degree still earns you more money even than a vocational um, certificate or, you know, something like that. But some of these salaries are darn right good salaries. And depending, especially depending on where you're at in the nation, electrician, 78.4 a year, $78,000 a year. Fire supervisor, captain, 76. Um, auto insurance appraiser, 62,000. So these are definitely not any salaries to sneeze at, especially when you consider the fact that you're making that salary, you know, maybe not year one, but you're making that salary without college debt to pay off. So, um, you know, just as a comparison, chief executive requiring a bachelor's degree, 183. So way up there, like way more, that's the highest one versus like finance manager, which is 125. Um, they're not the same, but that is a viable route. And so I feel like that should be incentivized as well. Why don't we encourage people to go into vocational schools where they can earn more money? They don't have to take out the same kind of loans that they would if they were attending a four-year. And, and that still is giving them the things that Cassie was talking about in terms of the reasoning and the critical thinking and a different experience and without all of the price tags associated with it. Yeah, the vocational schools are interesting. I think they're a great option for lots of people. The, the argument that I've seen against it that I do think is convincing to me is it, if you incentivize this a lot, it, you're sort of stratifying society into people who are the higher earners, almost like the more elite class and then the vocational class and people who were, are going to be more likely to go into the vocational um, jobs or, or, or schools are the ones who can't afford college. So then you have like rich kids going to college and people who don't have as much money going into vocations and then the rich kids making more money, vocational people making less money. And you just kind of have, you continue an income gap and still have wealth inequality when you do it this way. And if you were able to do instead, I mean, I don't think that's like necessarily a bad solution for right now, but like to me, the better solution is to offer the higher education in a way that's equitable to everyone. I feel like you make a lot of leaps assuming that suddenly there's going to be, if we do this, I'm not saying instead of, I'm saying like, let's push it as a parallel track. Let's push Isn't it. Is it already pushed as a parallel track? I mean, I see it, but maybe that I'm just being anecdotal. I, 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 I see it around as being like this alternative option that's out there. I that's never. I see it too. That's my whole town. There's a bunch of people in Galt that were like, okay, well, like, what about secret option C? Can I just get trained to be a super skillful worker? Yeah, I know a bunch of people in who did it too. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, again, anecdotal, like all three of us, but I, that was never like discussed as a, a route in my school. Yeah, but that's maybe what, I mean, I'm saying I agree with you, even though I sound like I'm saying the opposite of you. I think it would be nice if it was presented as a more viable option. I feel like it's like, okay, if you're not this enough or don't have that enough, you can do a vocational school. If it wasn't presented like that, wouldn't we be better off? Like we could stop minimizing people who have these really valuable and needed skill sets. Right. Like I'm, I'm not saying take away from the college pool and have them go to vocational schools. I'm saying, what if we took people that are maybe their higher, highest level of education was only going to be high school education. And we said, well, instead of just a high school education, what if you went to 
uh, a vocational school and, and learn to craft because there are plenty of people that just go with the high school route. And I mean, that your, your pay gap, you know, scenario that you were saying, Aaron already exists. We already have people that earn, you know, less than $30,000 a year with a high school education. And then the median of college educates is, you know, way higher. So like that already exists. So I see vocational schools and trade schools as, as a net benefit where it's not going to be for everybody. Right. I don't know that, that all, all the people that are going to go to college are suddenly going to switch and go to vocational schools, but you might get more of the people that maybe wouldn't do as well in college going to vocational schools. And you would get some people that are maybe would be content with just a high school education and afraid of going to college or wary about going to college, going into, you know, the next step above. So I just see it as a viable third option with not a lot of downsides. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that. And, and kind of to the same point, I think that we push college harder than we should because there are kids who aren't ready to go to college when they're 17 or 18. They're just yeah. not. And they should go work a job for a couple of years, right? Or maybe if they have the means, go travel, do something like that. And until they are more sure maybe what they want to do. And I think our college structure kind of incentivizes like going and figuring it out there, which, they, and this is another problem with students not graduating in four years. We didn't talk about this really, but that's a huge problem. It's, a, it's more than half of students don't graduate in four years, which is crazy. And I mean, I, I think that we saw that Particularly, I mean, at Cal Poly, like no one in engineering graduated in four years. It was like the program wasn't even totally set up to graduate people in four years if you were in engineering. That's a problem too. And so maybe if we didn't push college as the only thing that is a good choice for you when you're 18, we would have fewer problems with some of even just the college debt. I, yeah, I agree for sure. Well, this is super interesting. I learned a lot. Oh my God. I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Same. Well, if we missed something, let us know. Yep. Tell us. But I think, I think, yeah, for us, that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Hope you enjoyed this week's discussion and we appreciate you listening. Absolutely. Hit us up with any of your questions. Bye y'all. Thank you for listening to the Reframers Pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please rate and review us five stars and subscribe so you can always catch our latest episode. You can also find us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at Reframers Pod. And you can email us at reframerspod at gmail.com. 